Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all the environs from two years old and under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be comforted, because they were no more. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the regions of Galilee and came and resided in a city called Nazareth. That which was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called. A Nazarene. In our previous messages on Matthew, we have stressed the fact that God has gone to great lengths from a human perspective to fulfill prophecy concerning the Messiah. We have stressed the fact that prophecy is nothing else but the fulfillment of God's predestined plan. We have noted from Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 12, that God earnestly watches over his word to perform it, and everything that God has ever said will come to pass. It will be fulfilled. Concerning the birth of Christ, seven centuries passed since the prophecies concerning the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. Jesus is the God-man. He is fully God, fully man in one person. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us, which is what that means. His name is Jesus, meaning he will save his people from their sins. These wise men, seeing this star, they traveled from the east, and they traveled to Bethlehem to worship this newborn king of the Jews. We saw uh, last week that King Herod was a very wicked man who would kill anyone that he perceived was a threat to his throne. We mentioned that he was not a Jew himself, uh, but he was put in power by Rome to be the king of the Jews. He understood that the people did not like him, and uh, anything that threatened his reign, he would do away with them. We saw that even uh, among his sons, he had ten wives, and he had around twelve children, and some of his sons he murdered that he perceived was a threat to the throne, which prompted uh, Caesar Augustus himself to say it was better to be one of Herod's swine than one of his sons. So when Herod spoke with the wise men, he wanted to learn of the child's presence, He brought in uh, the scribes uh, and those who knew the scriptures, and they said that the prophecy is concerning Bethlehem. 
He brings the wise men in and he says, go and, and when you find this child, come back and tell me so I may go and worship him too. Well, <clears throat> we see that uh, the wise men will go and find the child. God likewise told Joseph and Mary uh, in a dream not to, to flee to Egypt because of danger. Herod's mindset was not to worship the child. His mindset was to kill them. And we're told that God even warned uh, these wise men uh, when they found the child to go back to the east another way. And it was in a dream, just like an angel came and spoke to Joseph in a dream, God spoke to these wise men in a dream uh, not to go back to Herod. Remember, Herod got the wise men to, in a secret meeting, asking them uh, the time of this supposed child's birth and all of this. And we said secretly, probably because uh, <clears throat> when they came back, he would dispense with these wise men as well, just like he would dispense with anybody else. Well, when God told Joseph to take Mary and the child to flee to Egypt, why Egypt? I mean, he could have gone to other places in the wilderness to escape. He could have gone to the mountains of Judea and hid out. But why Egypt? Well, the scripture says, like verse 15 said, to fulfill prophecy. Out of Egypt did I call my son. And so God tells them, the angel says, to flee to Egypt so that Scripture is fulfilled. I hope you get the idea that all these actions are done with the distinct purpose of God fulfilling prophecy. The timing that they do, where they go, all is for the purpose that God has already predestined. So the focus today... It's going to be upon God's sovereignty and how it works in conjunction with man's accountability. These are two great theological truths that uh, have been debated for centuries in the Christian church. But they come to bear in our understanding of prophecies and all the things that go on with respect to prophecy and how they're fulfilled. We see the working of divine sovereignty in conjunction with human responsibility in the fulfillment of these prophecies. Now, sometimes Christians want to emphasize uh, one of these biblical truths to the, to the exclusion of the other truth. Someone's once said, friends don't need to be reconciled. And there is no, there's a friendship between the divine sovereignty and human accountability. They're not at odds against one another in any shape or form. Now, I've mentioned this in the past. I don't pretend to understand how these two magnificent doctrines always function simultaneously together. But again, just as Isaiah 55 says, as God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Scripture teaches both divine sovereignty, that God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass, based on nothing that he has foreseen, and not based upon the conditions that they may bring about. 
And God has also commanded us to be responsible to what he has revealed to us. So in order to affirm God's sovereignty, again, I think it is important that we see how in the, in the bringing to pass biblical prophecy, God is bringing together these two great doctrines, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. So I want us to take a look at several passages. Again, we've looked at these in the past that will affirm both these biblical truths. First of all, turn with me to, to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14, and we'll begin, first of all, at verse 24, and then verse 27 of Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, 24 says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Just surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. Then verse 27, For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as far as his outstretched hand, who can turn it back? And so we see that God has a plan, and he will do the plan. And he says, who can stop me? Nobody. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 4, and let's look at verses 34 and 35. This is a passage. This is when Nebuchadnezzar has come to his senses after being humbled by God for seven years because of his great pride. And it says in verse 34, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? Now Nebuchadnezzar, who thought he was in control of everything, who thought by his own power he had created great Babylon. And God said, I will, because of your pride, I will hum- humble you and you'll crawl like a beast for seven years on the earth. And God did humble him. Of course, uh, Nebuchadnezzar says there in verse 37, uh, <clears throat> Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of Heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. He is one that can give a testimony. And so we see that you can be a great king of the earth, but God will have his way among the rulers of the earth. And as Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way, the Lord is God. The Lord is sovereign. And no one can frustrate the plan of God, not even the great Nebuchadnezzar. Turn with me, turn back to Isaiah, to Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, 
My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. Now you understand, earlier in the Sunday school hour, why you would have started meddling. God's plan is amazing. God says, I have planned history out already. I have planned it from the, the end, from the beginning. It's already been dictated. Nobody can change it. No one. And yet, he says, I will call a prey from the east, meaning he will take the Babylonians and he will punish his rebellious people. And they are punished because they were unfaithful to him. They were idolatrous. They went after other gods. He had sent them prophet after prophet after prophet. If they refused to obey, God says, then I will judge you. And Babylon, and we see earlier, the Assyrians, he says they are the means by which I will humble you. But God didn't put it in their hearts to do the evil. Such is the majesty of God. And so we see that God has decreed whatsoever comes to pass, and no man can prevent it. And when God prophesies, that is, he predestines an event, and no power on earth and no devil and his minions can stop it. God promised for the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem, and nothing would stop it. It could only be Bethlehem, and it was going to be Bethlehem. And as we noted in message uh, a week, uh, several weeks ago, did Caesar Augustus plan his taxation to get Joseph and Mary to their place to be taxed in Bethlehem? Was that what his mindset? Hardly. Did Joseph have it all figured out about the prophecy from seven centuries when he went? Was it just luck that Mary happened to be pregnant with the Messiah? And about, says when they arrived in Bethlehem, it says she was great with child, about ready to give birth. Was this all just happen chance? Well, no. Did God put it in the mind of Caesar Augustus? No. Did he put it in the mind of Joseph? Not necessarily, no. But it all converged, did it not, to fulfill seven centuries. God had planned it. I have declared the end from the beginning. I have planned it. I will do it. And so no one forced anyone to do anything against their will. One of the best examples of how God's sovereignty works in conjunction with human accountability And again, the reason we're going into this is we see in Herod's activities and everything around the birth of Jesus, divine sovereignty at work, and yet all this human accountability coming into play to fulfill prophecy. One of the best examples, of course, in Scripture is how God dealt with Pharaoh in Egypt. How God said to Moses, when he called Moses, he says, Moses, you're going to deliver my people out of Egypt. They're going to be there for 430 years. 
It's time for their deliverance, and I'm sending you uh, to them. I don't want to go, Lord. He didn't want to go. He didn't want to speak, but you're going to go. God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart not to let my people go. But, you know, this area of uh, God saying, I'm going to harden his heart, we need to understand that. We need to take a look at a couple passages in Exodus. So, first of all, turn with me to Exodus chapter 9. And we're going to look at verses 33 through 35. Now, we've already, I could refer to some earlier passages like in Exodus 4 where God says to Moses, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Well, concerning the same instances, this is what the scripture says concerning Pharaoh. Exodus 9, verses 33 through 35. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and rain no longer poured on the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not let the sons of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. So it says here, when the plague was removed, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart not to let Israel go. Turn over with me to Exodus 14. Look at verses 3 through 8. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel... Now, this is after the final plague, and and Pharaoh says, just get out of here. And now it says, verse 3, For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him, and he took 600 select chariots and the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, And he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then you look at verse 17 and 18. And as for me, behold, I will harden the heart of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh through his chariots and his horsemen. Now, let's look at that again. God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But then it was Pharaoh who said, what have we done? It was Pharaoh who said, let's go and flee after them. They wanted to destroy them. Look over at Exodus 15, verses 1 through 11. Now, as I read verses 1 through 11, this is a song, Song of Moses. And it's a wonderful song. And I've always said to those that want us only to sing the Psalms, 
what's wrong with the Song of Moses? And how glorious the Song of Moses is. Why can't we sing that, supposedly? Well, look at the Song of Moses and what Israel sang and what God did to the Egyptians. Start at verse 1. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord, has said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choices of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of thine excellence, thou dost overthrow those who rise up against thee. Thou dost send forth thy burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. And at the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Now this blow with thy wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Now, which is it? Is it God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Or is it Pharaoh hardening his own heart? Well, it is both in a biblical sense. We know from Scripture that God is not the author of evil. He is light, and Scripture says, in him there is no darkness whatsoever. Scripture says emphatically, he tempts no man. God did not put it in the thought of Pharaoh to not let Israel go. He did not put it directly in the thought of Pharaoh to pursue Israel. And then notice what 9 says. Whose desire was it to go after Israel? It was the Egyptians' desire to pursue them in the Red Sea. God's hardening men's heart is not causing them to sin. So when the Bible says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, then how are we to understand it when it already says Pharaoh hardened his own heart? Well, God is God, right? He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And he ordained the whole scenario so that Pharaoh would be resistant and Pharaoh, acting out of his own evil desires, would not let Israel go. And out of his own evil desires, he pursued Israel into the Red Sea. So when it says God hardens his heart, what is happening? Let's put it this way. And I'm mentioning this to show how Herod is similar to Pharaoh. Herod's a very wicked man. God didn't put it in the heart of 
Herod to do what he did to fulfill prophecy. What happens is, God's Holy Spirit not only works his work of grace in us to to regenerate us, but the scripture also affirms the fact that God restrains men from letting their evil desires be what they could be outside of the common grace of God. Why is it that some people are serial killers and the rest of us aren't? Now, we've learned in Sunday school lesson, we all have committed the sin of murder in some shape or form, breaking the Sixth Commandment, but we're not serial killers as such. Why? Why do some are so vicious, malicious, heartless, wicked, like Pharaoh, like Herod? Some men, God just simply backs away. As it were, turns over their heart to their own heart's desire. Let's them do whatever they want to do. And they do it. So he withdraws his common grace. Now, is that, make, is that implicating God in all this? Not really. God's not forcing him to do it. He didn't put the thought there. The thought came in their own mindset. But he is the sovereign God. Was it going to happen? Sure it was going to happen. Did he know that Pharaoh would pursue Israel in the sea? Absolutely. Was he determined to destroy Egypt? Absolutely. He said, I will. He said, I will be honored by Pharaoh. And in the destruction of Pharaoh's army, he was honored, as the Song of Moses testifies. Now, God being God allows men to make free moral decisions that carry consequences, and the consequences of their free moral actions always, without exception, fulfills God's predetermined plan. John, I want you to tell me the mechanism. How is that so? Well, you can ask me, but I'll tell you this right up front. I don't know. I don't pretend to know. Turn with me to to Acts chapter 2. The most heinous event of all time. The death of Jesus. Look what Scripture says, beginning at Acts 2, verses 22 and 23. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, which is it? God's predestined plan or their, their evil actions? It says both. God predestined to deliver him up. How, was he, how did he predestine him to be delivered up? At the hands of godless men? Men who decided on their own to crucify Jesus? Turn over to Acts 4. Look at verse 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, 
whom thou didst anoint both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. Did God make Pontius Pilate do what he did? No. Did he make the people cry out for Barabbas instead of Jesus? No. Did he put it in their heart to, to want Barabbas over Jesus? No. Was it all planned to happen exactly that way? Yes. It says he predestined it to happen exactly that way. Turn over to Mark fourteen twenty one. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Thus says Jesus about Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. I am to go as it has been written of me. He will be betrayed. He will be betrayed, as prophecy says, by a friend. He will be betrayed not by 30 pieces of gold, but by 30 pieces of silver. Exactly as it happened. And Judas will have remorse and will throw... Uh, the 30 pieces of silver back to the Sanhedrin because he didn't exactly see it going down the way it did. And they said, does that concern us? He's, and notice what Judas said when he threw back those 30 pieces of silver into the court of the Sanhedrin. He says, I have sinned against innocent blood. And they said, so what is that to us? And yet that throwing back and it would be used to purchase a plot because Judas would hang himself and the plot was purchased for those 30 pieces of silver just as Scripture planned it. Jesus says it would have been better if Judas had never been born to betray the Son of God. And yet, his betrayal is predestined. But Judas can't say, woe is me that God picked on me. No, he wanted to betray Jesus. And he did. And did he say, well, God uh, made me sin? No, he said, I have sinned against innocent blood. I'm the culprit, Judas says. And so we see, God does use means to accomplish his predestined plan without being limited by those means. Now, if you want to follow along with me again, I want to read one section in the Confession of Faith again. In chapter 3, it says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will. His own will decided what history would be. And freely, no one forced God. And unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. There's not going to be any alteration whatsoever. And despite what dispensational premillennialism says, that Jesus offered the kingdom to the Jews, and when they refused to accept it, then God chose plan B, and Jesus went to the cross. Now, I just quoted to you out of Schofield's 
Bible notes, by the way. No. God had predestined it all to go down the way it did. But it says, yet so, as there neither, thereby neither is God the author of sin. So now, God is not implicated. They're making a point to prove that God's not implicated. Nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. That's important because God didn't make anybody do anything against their will. Nor is the liberty or the contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Now, the word contingent means something will be done depending upon something else occurring. That's what contingent means. When it says, nor is the liberty or the contingency of second causes taken away, but established. Now, I won't mention this, but you may have realized, uh, read in the book of Acts when Paul was on the ship, and he will be shipwrecked. And God comes to him and says, tell everybody to stay aboard, okay? And he says, if everybody obeys, then they will survive. But if they don't, they can perish. Well, everybody survived because Paul says <laughs> we're going to be shipwrecked. The thing about it is, here is a contingency of second causes. Do what you're told and you'll survive. Do what, don't do what you're told and you'll die. And then he goes on to say, although God knows whatsoever may or come to pass on supposed conditions, yet he has not decreed anything because he saw it was future. It's not like God, as I said, runs the tape. I, I guess i got to use the CD imagery now. <laughs> he doesn't go to track 10 and see, oh, okay, this is what they're going to do. Go back to track A says, all right, before the foundation of the world, this is what I'm going to do. Because I saw what they were going to do over here. No. By the way, what, what is wrong with that idea? Think about it for a moment. What is the, wrong with the idea that God makes his plan based on what he foresees? Well, who is the architect of history then? Man or God? Man. If God makes his plan based on what he sees man doing, man is the architect. But what did Isaiah say? No, I have ordained the end from the beginning. No, I'm the one that makes up the plan. I mention all of this so that we can understand what happened again in this slaughter that Herod will do against the male children in Bethlehem. So we turn back to our passage in Matthew says in verse 16, Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem in all its environments from two years old and under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. Now, first of all, some have tried to maintain from this passage that Jesus must have been two years of age because Herod killed the male children two years and under based on what it says he had ascertained from the Magi about this star. Now, there's nothing in Scripture 
that would substantiate the fact that Jesus was two years old when the Magi arrived. Simply because of what it says that Herod was ascertaining, what he, Herod, ascertained from information from these Magi. The false assumption, first of all, is made is that the star did not appear until after the birth. Who says that? So when the Magi arrived, notice what our text says. They asked for what? A newborn king is what they asked for. Not a child, perhaps in his second year. They asked for a newborn king. When we compare Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus with Luke's account of the birth of Jesus, we see that Joseph and Mary followed the, the law of Moses to the prescribed detail. And now what did that involve? Well, it involved the circumcision of Jesus on the eighth day, and it involved the purification of Mary for 33 days as the law prescribed before she could come before the temple. She was ceremonially unclean. Now, I want to turn to to demonstrate that to you. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 12 and look at verses 1 through 4 of Leviticus 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as in the days of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of the foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing, nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. All right? Now turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Look at Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 26. And when eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses was completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem Present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then in verse 39, it says, in Luke's account, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. Now, before you go, oh, oh, oh no, where is... The warning to Joseph to go to Egypt until Herod dies. What's not in Luke's account? Luke didn't think to put, he didn't put it in there for a reason. 
You have to take Matthew's account together with Luke's account to get the whole picture. Now, it's quite apparent. Now, Luke didn't make a mistake. We know that Matthew says an angel appeared telling Joseph after the birth of Jesus and after the wise men had visited to take Mary and the child to go to Egypt until Herod dies. So, piecing all the biblical data together, here's what we see. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, where the shepherds make the visit, not the wise men, according to Luke 2. On the eighth day of Jesus' life, according to the law of Moses, they obey the law of Moses, and Jesus is circumcised. And as the law prescribes, Mary has to wait 40 days before she is ceremonially clean to come to Jerusalem to present Jesus in the sanctuary. So we know already 40 days have elapsed. As Luke says, Joseph and Mary present their firstborn in the temple where Simeon gets to see the Messiah that the Spirit of God says you're going to get to see him before you die. So that very night, so after their purification, here's the part that Luke doesn't mention, but Matthew fills in the missing piece. After the purification, Joseph and Mary return to Bethlehem, obviously, and they are now where? In a house where the Magi arrived, where the, the star is hovering above it. And there we see. At that time, God warns Joseph to flee to Egypt. Now, if you look at Matthew 2, look at Matthew 2, verse 13. How long did it take Joseph to decide to obey what he had, in the, what the angel said in a dream? Look at verse 13 and 14. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed that night to Egypt. But you see, 40 days has already gone by. They've already circumcised Jesus, presented him in the temple. They come back to Bethlehem, and the wise men arrive and give their gifts to Jesus, and then... The wise men are warned not to go back to Herod. And Joseph is said to, by the angel, go to Egypt. And that's exactly what he did. That's it, piecing in the, the birth of Jesus. Now, in our text, it says in verse 16 that Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, well, you know, well, I guess that's how he viewed it. Now, how do you think a man who has a proclivity to killing anytime he chooses, is going to feel when the men he told to come back and report to him where this child was, doesn't come back. And he must have been waiting for them for a little while. And when it's evident that they're not coming back, the Greek says in the most emphatic way, he went, modern version, ballistic. He was enraged that he would be treated like this. So, 
in this state of rage, a murderous man, it says ascertained, some information the Magi thought, well, you know what? I'm going to cover all the bases. I'm going to be sure none escape. So I will give myself plenty of room, and I'll just kill every male child two years and under. That should do it. That should encompass getting this king of the Jews. Not only in Bethlehem, but it was in surrounding areas. <clears throat> Matthew 2.17 tells us that this murder of these children, these male children, fulfilled prophecy. Look what it says. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel re weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. This was a prophecy of Jeremiah 31, verse 15. The murderous plan of Herod to kill all these male children was a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, you see why I took the time to talk about human accountability with divine sovereignty? Nothing was going to change this. This was pr prophetic. It was going to happen. These male children would die. So that prophecy was fulfilled. Did God put it on the heart of Herod to do this? No. Did Herod's murderous plot fulfill the prophecy? Well, absolutely, down to the, to the minute detail it fulfilled it. But Herod is the one to put the blame on, not God. You mean to tell me that the death of these male children, we're not told how many. Some the thought was in the thousands, others says, no, that's just too far-fetched. It wasn't probably that many. But it doesn't matter how many. What do these, what do these, these little boys do? They didn't do anything. Really? Did anything to deserve Herod's wrath? Not really. Not in one sense. Was it the predestined plan of God? Well, absolutely it was in the plan of God for it to happen. You see, we must understand there's a, what we call in theology, a decretive will of God. And there is what we call the permissive will of God. The decretive will of God is the fact that God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. He has ordained the end from the beginning. That is the decretive will of God. History is what it is and will be by the plan of God. But also, Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us. God has a revealed will. Where we, where's His revealed will? Right here. The Scriptures is His revealed will. His permissive will. God does, as, a, as the Confession acknowledges, understanding the Scripture, God doesn't force men against their wills to do anything. He just lets them go according to their heart's desires. Now, if your heart is in controlled by sin, what are you going to do? Simple things. If your heart's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you have the ability to obey God at that point. So, by God's permissive will, he allows Herod to do what Herod desires to do. 
But what Herod desired to do fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah. When we choose to sin, we have chosen ourselves to violate the revealed will of God. And God has permitted this to take place. And God oftentimes permits us to sin and to reap the consequences of our sin. And the sin, though predestined, does not mean that God made it his plan foreseen upon the creature. So, it's wholly unbiblical to say that because God saw Herod would kill those children, that he has made Jeremiah's prophecy come to pass or contingent upon Herod. No, that's how the Armenians would argue, but it's not according to Scripture. God's plan isn't contingent upon some actions of other men. Now, concerning the death, I could probably, there's a lot of things I could say. I'm just going to tell you what Matthew Henry, the great commentator, has said about the death of these young boys. Here's what I thought was very helpful. It's not that long, but listen carefully. Hate, an unbridled wrath, armed with an unlawful power, often transports men to the most absurd and unreasonable instances of cruelty. It was no unrighteous thing for God to permit this. Every life is forfeited to his justice as soon as it commences. That sin which entered by one man's disobedience introduced death with it. And we are not to suppose anything more than the common guilt. We are not to suppose that these children were sinners above all that were in Israel. Because they suffered such things. God's judgments are a great deep. The diseases and deaths of little children are proofs of original sin. Now, in one sense, we could say these male children, they didn't do anything worthy to be executed or killed by Herod. But like all human beings, someone has told me, and I I do bring this up in presbytery exams, I ask guys, it says, is there an uh, age of accountability? And they almost really do say, well, no, and, you know, because some say it's 11 years old. Well, I've set them up. I guess. I said, well, I believe in age accountability. It's called conception in the body. That's the age of accountability. The moment, because the scripture says that, in, as Solomon says, in sin, my mother conceived me. The moment we become a human being, we have become, as it were, the sins of Adam are imputed to us by his representative headship. And Psalm says, we go, Job even said this, we, we go astray at birth. Now, did anyone, does anyone have to make you sin? Does anyone have to convince you sin? Kind of, kind of just goes with territory of being a human, doesn't it? We, we, we sin freely. We sin willfully. But we are sinners the moment we are conceived. Now, as Matthew Henry says concerning these male children, he says, They're not innocent in one sense, but it is a great tragedy that they were murdered by Herod. 
Now, you know that many people, you've heard the argument, many people will argue against God. And what's their one of the most favorite lines? Well, what about all the little children that get killed around the world and these typhoons and these hurricanes and, and all these poor children that starve to death? It, it is sad. There can't be, how can there be a loving God, as you Christians talk about, when all of this happens? We, we do know that there are degrees of punishment, but they're not all innocent. They haven't died because uh, of the sins of their fathers, because the scripture says uh, the sons are not held accountable by the sins of their fathers, but they do often sin in the likeness of their fathers. So imagine the scene of being in Bethlehem, and you're in your house. And you got your little baby. And the soldiers come storming through Bethlehem, bust through the door, determine a male child, rip that male child from your hands, go to the next house, do the same thing. Word gets out, maybe some mothers are running down the streets, seeing what's happening to other mothers, and the soldiers run them down, grab them, determine a male child, kill the child before their eyes. It says there was such weeping that it was heard from Bethlehem to Ramah, which was a distance away, not far, but it was such weeping you could hear. You can only imagine the horror of what was happening. And it says here, the reason that Rachel is brought in here, and it's, it's fitting because, <clears throat> as you know, according to Scripture, Rachel was the wife, unfortunately as it is, that it says that Jacob loved. It didn't say he loved her more than Leah. That was sad. But it was a fact. And Joseph and Benjamin are the children born to Rachel. And you know, we've, thought, we've, we've preached on this before out of that. Rachel wanted to have children so bad she was not able to, to have children, and she complained to, to Jacob, Give me children lest I die. And, and Jacob says, Am I God? I mean, I can't help that, that God has closed the womb. And she wanted these children so bad. And we're told in the Scriptures that when she was giving birth to Benjamin, the last of the children to, <clears throat> that were to Jacob, we see that she, the Bible says she was in intense pain in her childbirth and was dying. And the scripture says as she was dying in childbirth, she named the male child Ben-Ami, meaning son of her sorrow, is what Benjamin means. And then she dies. And guess where she's buried? between Bethlehem and Ramah. So it was fitting, wasn't it, that Jeremiah's prophecy says when this terrible act of Herod killing these male children and the mothers just weeping and wailing can be heard to Ramah, it says Rachel is weeping because they can identify perhaps these, some of these women were the descendants of Rachel. And like Rachel, they lived near Rachel's grave. 
and many of them descended from Rachel. And they were fittingly represented as Rachel weeping for her children. By the way, Ramah was the place where when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, he took the captives out to Ramah and there slew some of them. And the ones he didn't kill by the sword, he sent off to Babylon into captivity. So there was a lot of wailing and weeping in Ramah there, historically the place there. Now what a wicked man Herod the Great was. Now you might be thinking, this guy needs to get it big time. Right? And if there was ever a vicious man, it was Herod. As we already said, anybody that threatened his throne, he killed. Killed some of his own sons. Killed a wife uh, who he thought was plotting against him. Decides to cover the places, as it were, kill all these children. I mean, killing people was nothing to Herod. Does he get what he deserves? You know, oftentimes you don't. But let me read to you very briefly. Josephus, the Jewish historian that you've heard me talk about, gives an account of the death of Herod. According to Josephus, Herod <clears throat> suffered from asthma, limb convulsions, foul breath. Must have been some really foul breath if they mentioned that. He writes, quote, he had a fever, though not a raging fever, an intolerable itching of the whole skin, continuous pains in the intestines, tumors of the feet as in dropsy, inflammation of the abdomen, and gangrene, maggoted infestation of the private parts. Herod would die a most gruesome death. More gruesome to end up in hell forever. But it was quite gruesome. Not unlike the death of his grandson, Herod Agrippa, remember, who had killed the Apostle James, ready to kill Peter, and came out to the crowds there in the book of Acts, and the people saw the radiant splinter and said, A God! A God! And it says he really didn't stop the people, and then it says at that moment God killed them with worms. Guess you don't want to be a descendant of Herod, do you? You know, the sad thing about it is, is, as Herod was dying this gruesome death, he was so concerned that he knew that the people hated him. And he knew that probably when he died, there might be celebration in the streets. So, on his deathbed, he conspires with his wife, Salome, and her husband, Alexis, to arrest all the principal leaders in Judea, imprison them, and at the moment of his death, he commands them to kill all these leaders of Judah so that when he died, at least there would be some weeping at his funeral. What a sordid man. Somebody would be crying. Well, they're not crying for Herod, but it didn't matter. They would associate him dying when people would be weeping for these these men who were capable leaders, at least somebody will be weeping at my death. Well, fortunately, the plot was never carried out, though it was plotted. 
But that is the kind of man Herod the Great was. So, verse 19, when he dies, the angel of the Lord then, remember, says, stay in Egypt until the word comes that Herod is dead. Well, Herod is dead. And it says, an angel appeared and says, take the child and go back to the land of Israel, because those who sought the child's life are dead. So now Joseph is going to go back, and all indications are he's going to go back to Bethlehem, Judea. But now here's where <laughs> prophecy and human accountability actions come into play because it says, And when he arose and took the child of his mother to come back to the land of Israel, verse 21, verse 22, But when he heard that Archelaus, Herod's son, was reigning over Judea, he was afraid, meaning, like father, like son, he'd probably want to kill if it got revealed. But then an angel warned him in a dream, don't go to this area. Depart from the regions of Galilee. Now, why do you go to Galilee so that Jesus is where? In Nazareth. So that he will be Jesus, the Nazarene. As the scripture foretells. Brethren, what I want you to see is how the great glorious plan of God will be prophesied. It may remain dormant for centuries, but God watches over his word to perform it. And he will perform it. And he will perform it even using the means of some very wicked men to carry out the, the, the prophecy. However, not hold them accountable, or God's, that is, is not accountable for their sins in doing it. Yeah, Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart in the sense he just let Pharaoh go. And Pharaoh says harden his heart not to let Israel go. Pharaoh decided to pursue Israel in the sea and paid a price. Herod decides to kill these children. He'll pay a price. But all of the plan of God will be fulfilled. This is the God whom we serve. A majestic, as the Song of Moses says, a majestic, awesome God. What other God is awesome as this God revealed in the Scriptures? who can foreordain whatsoever come to pass, watch over it, perform it, after thousands of years take place, and even use evil men to do it and yet be not implicated in their evil actions and then hold them accountable. Only the God of Scriptures is that kind of an awesome God. Let us pray.